Warning, the cases that I talk about here are under the assumption that the individuals that are accused allegedly committed these crimes unless they have been convicted in court for the, tri for the crimes that they have been charged with. This is by no means me making any kind of accusations whatsoever. I am simply commenting on news articles and stories that have been shared with me through individuals who may or may not have experienced these said stories. This is not fact. This is purely my opinion. Unless they have been through court and they have been convicted. Please understand that moving forward. Thank you. Trigger warning. The podcast you're about to listen to may contain sexual and violent acts committed against men, women, and children. If such acts offend you in any way, please do not listen any further. This podcast was made for an audience of 18 years and older and contains mature and explicit content. Also, this podcast may also contain a high level of profanity and explicit language. If such things offend you in any way, shape, or form, please do not listen to the podcast any further. This is your last trigger warning. If anything that I mentioned above offends you, please do not listen. Thank you. Hey everybody, this is Jeremy with the Manor Park Podcast. This podcast covers rape and pedophilia cases, as well as highlight organizations that make it their mission in this world to fight for children. I appreciate you clicking on to my podcast and listening to these episodes. I also have survivor interviews that I share as well, which can be very graphic and heavy. But it's much needed to be heard in this day and age. Because, like a lot of people, I myself was not aware of how troubling and how deep this issue really was. Until I started hearing survivors and listening to the heinous and horrific things they went through. So thank you for clicking on this podcast and listening to these stories. While I know they're deep and disturbing, we need to know what goes on with the victims and survivors and what they went through so that we can try to identify the problem and then we can figure out how to solve the problem. My podcast is not for the light of heart. It's not for the faint-hearted at all. It's not for anybody with a weak stomach. These stories will change you mentally. They will make you question your faith. They will make you wonder why is it that the systems that are in place do not protect children and do not give justice to survivors. And that's what I want it to do. I want it to make you think. I want it to make you go and be curious enough to do the research as well and to go out there and seek the answers and find the truth to all of this. Because somebody has to. I myself is just a man who was tired of seeing these babies being harmed. And from there, it grew. And I found out so many different traumas that I never knew existed. So thank you for joining me on this journey. Thank you for clicking on this episode. Thank you for supporting me. It does mean a lot, and it's much appreciated. And I'm glad to know that since I've started this journey, there are so many individuals out there that care about protecting children and helping survivors like I do. With that, here's the latest episode. Hey, everybody. 
This is Jeremy with the Manapart Podcast. This is going to be episode 54, titled L.A. Adoption and Newports. So this story is going to be dropped in multiple parts back to back in the next couple of weeks. And I met Samantha Haynes on TikTok kind of fairly early on when I started out my TikTok channel for the podcast and it was just this uh, I didn't know a whole lot about Samantha at first I knew that she was a survivor I knew that she was a survivor of the of the troubled teen industry and I found out she was also an adoptee and she had adoption trauma later on uh, months later I found out that she was also she's a an she's also an an ex-convict she went to prison for murdering a pedophile and she spent six years in prison over it and when she got out sometime later she got clean and she was also a person who wants to help adoptees troubled teen industry survivors and people who are recovering an addiction as well as other things she gets into on her TikTok channel but I remember seeing the story just coming across it one day, just randomly. And Samantha was always supporting my TikTok, liking my liking my post, reposting, you know, always you know, commenting here and there and everything like that. And I just kind of, you know, knew her a little bit like that. And when I dug into her story, I was like, Holy shit. And I told Samantha, I said, Look, you know, obviously you know what I'm about, you know what my, my podcast and my TikToks are about. Will you come on and talk about that experience, you know, with killing the pedophile? And she told me, I'd like to tell my whole story, if that's okay. And I said, of course. So I sat with Samantha on two separate occasions. We recorded about a total of, I think it was damn near, either damn near or at almost over eight hours worth of recordings. And it was like, holy shit. This story, y'all, it starts off slow. It's a slow burn, and it gets hotter and hotter and hotter. And I'm going to release this in pieces because you need to understand how she got to that point. You got to go all the way back to the beginning of how it all started out and how trauma can lead up to all these events, how just different types of traumas can affect a child's mind and how they become an adult later on. And that situations you get put in will lead to certain events in life. And that's what happened to her. It wasn't just one particular thing in general. It was a multitude, a whole slew, a litany of things that happened. And we have to go and understand that right from the very beginning. From when she was born. Okay? Right from when she was born. I'm going to tell y'all... Just buckle up, because after this first episode, it ramps up, and ramps up, and ramps up. And even after, you know, post-conviction, post-prison sentence and everything like that, it still gets wild. So just be on the lookout for these, I'm going to say about five, five to six episodes at least. It could go a little bit longer than that. But I'm going to release these in pieces to each point in her story. And I'm calling this the Samantha Haynes Chronicles. Because 
this is a wild ride, like I said. And I was on the edge of my seat listening to this, listening to her in real time tell me the story. Yeah, I just wow. Each each time I left from recording with her, I just like holy shit, wow. What the fuck? There are definitely some things in our society we have to change. And we need to focus and look at. And we need to have these conversations. When it comes to adoption. When it comes to the troubled teen industry. When it comes to even state laws. Like. uh, Yeah. You're going to understand why I'm feeling this and why I'm saying this now. By the end of. By the end of this series. That I'm putting out. So. Without further ado, please listen to this first in, first part of my interview with Samantha Haynes. It's called L.A. Adoption and Newports. Hey, everybody. So this is Jeremy with the Man Apart Podcast. And today I have an interview with Samantha Haynes, a lady that I know from TikTok. She's involved in different groups on TikTok. And so she has a very interesting story to tell y'all today. And so Samantha, I'm just going to go ahead and just say it. Let's just start from the beginning and go from there. All right. Well, the beginning uh, is, is pretty rough, right? Right from Jump Street, really. Um, yeah. My mom has a, a drug addiction and so does my dad. Really, they, they it was it was just chaotic. It was chaotic. My mom had already uh, relinquished her first child to her parents, and I came shortly after. And it she just I, I think she kind of already knew that realized that she wasn't going to be able to also take care of me. At four months, she gave me to my my grandmother, which is on my dad's side. So uh, my dad's name is David Haynes. His mom, so my grandmother, Galen Tivis, uh, she works for CYFD in Carlsbad, New Mexico. What it, well, what is CY? You said CY? Yes, CYFD is a... So every state has a different CPS. It's kind of okay, like... Yeah. You, know, all, you know, so that is New Mexico, what they call New Mexico's CPS. I gotcha. It, it's Child Youth and Families Services Department, I think. And she has basically ran that show for like 40 years there in that town. So she took her, I guess, resources and, you know, privileges working in that field to uh, adopt me off to somebody that she wanted me to go to. She wanted me to go to her uncle's family in Texas. This is where things get a little strange, actually. <laughs> yeah. Uh, somehow she gets my mom to sign a six month power of attorney. I, I don't know. So technically I am released to the, I'm a ward of the state, right? Right. Galen drives. Okay. She drives me to the El Paso border in Texas. So she takes me across state lines with this yeah. power of attorney, tells uh, my mom at the time. Her, her name is Dallas, my adopted mom, tells her to meet her at the airport and pick me up. So I fly to Los Angeles. We end up back in Texas because we're from Los Angeles, but she needed to go back to Texas just a month later. I yeah. hadn't 
it, there was no six months that went by. There was no, um, none of that. It was like the month later, my adoption is being sealed in the courts in the tiniest town in Texas. It's called Mineral Wells. It's like population nobody. And yeah. dad is the postmaster there and has lots of connections for a teeny tiny town. He's a postmaster. But yeah. they they get the attorney for Dallas. Somehow it's sealed that and it says in my adoption paperwork that my mom a- abandoned me for six months. So that's an automatic vanquish of her rights, right? She already termed, that's a termination of rights because she abandoned me for six months. Dallas was able to uh, adopt me all by herself. Nobody else adopted me, just her. The postmaster, her dad was Sydney. That was the uncle for Gay Lynn. Well, she told them that she was going to get me and she was going to, you know, raise me there. Well, since she was uh, pretty old at that point, she was almost she was getting almost to her 40s and her parents wanted her to come back home and settle down real bad the agreement between you know father and daughter was that she was going to come home and raise me you see what I mean and they they would be a happy family again because she left at 18 and really never came back she was in Los Angeles her, her best life did not keep her side of the bargain and just took off with me after the adoption yeah, and went back to Los Angeles, where she had a boyfriend that was black. Her family is now okay. So mind you, she was around forty when she got me, and I am thirty. So in the nineties, early early, yeah. 90s, her parents were from a small town in Texas, uh, and and there, and she was born in the fifties. So like this was way not okay. This was not okay to the like, point where, yes, that relationship was not all right. Dallas was. Yeah. I, I, I live in Louisiana. I kind of understand that very too well. It's, I mean, I live now, I live in Texas and it's still an issue in, you know, 2023. So yeah. uh, I could just imagine how bad it was in the 50s when she was born, right? This. Right. All hell is breaking loose. So she was never going to go home again. It's just not okay. Yeah, she was never going home again. So I did have a father that raised me and her mixed couple in the 90s was still in Los Angeles. What I'm saying in Los Angeles in the 90s, it was still bad. I I know that maybe people will think that California is a a little more liberal to that in the 90s, but it wasn't at all. I mean, we had Rodney King riots in the 90s, um, and I remember it. I was old enough to remember that. Uh, It was not, no, nothing, nope. It was isolating. Um, They didn't trust anybody. It was still so new then. Yeah. They were against the world, and that's how they felt. They, They didn't get out much. They stayed home all the time. It was only us three. It was extremely lonely to you know no siblings no like I've already gone through a lot of trauma by that point you know just just being just having you know um relinquishment trauma from Trish losing my whole family that's right 
trauma enough, but there's an added layer of trauma when you're just isolated your whole childhood too from, you know, everybody, even going to, man, Denny's was, was doing so bad. Uh, there's, I think there was even lawsuits at the time. I, I don't remember now, but uh, every time we just went to Denny's for, you know, weekend breakfast, nope, we got treated like shit there. Like, it was horrible. Where, so I, where at in L.A. did y'all live at specifically? Because, I, I mean, because I used to be, so I was an over-road truck driver for, for a while. And I used to go, like, out to East L.A., like, Ontario and everything like that. Um, and I used to go th- all through L.A., like, city industry and everything. Uh, what what area in L.A. specifically did y'all live in? So, North Hollywood was my yeah. first things, um, on Burbank Boulevard. Okay, yeah. Yes. No, exactly. Yeah. Around, like, Colfax Avenue and Burbank Boulevard is actually oh, wow. complex, uh I lived in. Yeah. Well... Like, like, what what was it like with them growing up? You know, your adopted mom and dad and everything. Like, was like, what did they do for a living and everything too? So, uh, in in the beginning, so man, in the beginning, uh, Dallas was not uh, okay. She was always in the hospital. She was uh, diagnosed with cancer, like yeah, at forty. So, like around the time that she got me, I was I was still I was probably like three four when she was going through cancer treatments for about a year, but she was just a teacher then. So, and her husband or her boyfriend at the time, he was kind of working, but he also drug problem and they were on and off. They were always fighting. Uh, The fighting even got crazier when she was sick that year. I mean, like ruthless, Uh, all of the, we had glass, Marilyn Monroe pictures on the wall and uh, they were all broken every single one I had to be locked in the bathroom all night one night um and I I slept on the tile in the bathroom uh, because they and they were just screaming all night it was just it the fighting was so bad and I think too their relationship in society like societal's pressures on their relationship was already bad yeah because because there's because i mean just like here in the south and everything like that there was always a stick especially in the early 90s there was a stigma with interracial relationships and from both sides friends, nothing like no friends that had kids because like it was just i, I can just imagine what it was like for them and, and what it was like for him because he's the one that's being stigmatized against you see what i yeah. mean I just could only imagine uh, the just, yeah, exactly. Just societal pressures alone, what that could do is just messed up enough. The cancer just turned it up. Dallas was scared she was going to die. She was trying to also find somewhere for me to go. She had just adopted me. I, I finally got over all of that. She she was able to get through it, but it was a year of hell. Like the house wasn't clean. I remember the plumbing one time. We since she was just a teacher, we were still poor, and she was the only income. Yeah, I remember the pipes went out, and like the whole floor was flooded for like a weekend, or it, it seemed about like at least four days. We were stepping on uh, like Tupperware lids, like you know those big. Uh, yeah. Box everywhere in the house. <laughs> we were stepping on them to, to get by. So 
we obviously didn't have money to stay in a hotel for a couple of we had to stay with the sewer <laughs> under our feet for for a while yeah no we didn't have very much money i think she had a one of those ford pintos the cheapest car that's that's the level we were at so i didn't i, I wasn't adopted into a to a rich family or, or any really a financially stable one until I was a little bit later. Uh, we finally got out of that slum house and moved into the apartments, which is right down the street. So these apartments are Colfax Avenue and Burbank Boulevard. That's in North Hollywood. It's right down the street from North Hollywood High School, actually. When we lived here, I think at this point I had already been through enough and we moved there when I was six. <laughs> okay, like I'd already been through enough by this time. I got, I remember I got trapped in an elevator. There was uh, these um, 94 rolling blackouts that happened in Los Angeles. And it was a huge problem because there were car crashes everywhere. Like all of Los Angeles is just chaotic mode, okay? And yeah. a long time for uh, firefighters to get to me when I was stuck in an elevator. And this is kind of how Dallas treated me. I am not very old and I am in an elevator by myself in a bathing suit going all the way downstairs to the pool that's all the way on the other side of an apartment complex. Like, I'm yeah. sorry. A six-year-old, seven-year-old should not be walking around in an apartment complex in L.A., a big apartment. I mean, I could have just been snatched up by anybody in that building and no one would have known. There's so yeah. many people alone there. But that's kind of the how it was. They really didn't care. Um, I wasn't their child. Dallas wanted her own child, okay? She was already... Um, getting up in age and she hadn't had any so I, I wasn't really I wasn't what they wanted <laughs> right I was somebody else's kid so so that I think kind of puts a damper on it I think like natural maternal instincts puts a damper on bonding there's a lot of things that come into play with that uh, so I, it's you know I, I, I don't know but I mean, I, I, I kind of understand that feeling because when I grew up, um, I had a stepdad and everything as well. And my stepdad, I mean, he loved me. He, he, he treated me as a son and everything like that. But, it, you know, it's, it's nothing like the same as having your father, right? Or having an actual parent, your, your biological parent. Yeah. It's just, a, it's a different feeling. I understand that to a degree. Like, like once I've reconnected with my 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 biological father you know decades later um it was just it, it was a it, it really was a different feeling like you know because you can start to see similarities like people always ask me you know nature or, or versus nurture and everything and i always say it's a little bit of both depending on how you raise a child and everything but i can definitely see the nature side okay. whenever i spent time around my biological father because i you know I, he, the mannerisms um certain characteristics uh, even preferences and like food and stuff like that as well is completely different when you're taken away from your biological parents and put into a whole nother set. You reconnect later on. You're like, well, oh, so you like this and th I do too. I love this. Oh, I do this as well. And I, yeah, I have this eating habits. Like, you do too. Oh shit. And then you learn all these different things and people don't realize that 
like your medical history, um, things that you need in life, because there, there are a lot of us, you know, we have, we do, you know, with our genetics and everything like that, we inherit our, our predispositions to different diseases and stuff too. Uh, you know, it's, it's very important to know where you come from so you can prepare for your future a lot better. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's a piece of who you are and your identity. You see what I mean? If you don't know yeah. where you came from, where are you going to go? Who yeah. You? Don't even know my place in humanity. You see what I mean? I don't even know. Yeah. You're just kind of in limbo. It's hard oh, yeah. To, you see? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah I mean, I, so, I, so I can somewhat, like, I can kind of understand that, that feeling that you're in with that and everything. I don't know it completely because I wasn't, you know, um, you know, I still had my mom and everything when I was growing up, but like there, there was a missing piece of me, you know? So I, I, I can, I can totally, I can kind of, or not totally, but I can kind of relate to what you're feeling and, and like going through life with all this. Um, but yes, I mean, you, you, you going into this, you, you, you're at this, you're six years old, you're in a bathing suit and you are in an elevator in a rolling blackout. In a rolling blackout. And I don't know what to do because the, the elevator stopped mid, there's probably, there's that building, you know, there's, it was, it was gnarly. So, you know, those emergency phones in there. Yeah. They don't work when there's no fucking electricity. Yeah. Were you by yourself in this elevator or were you with other people? Absolutely alone. So that's what I was saying. Yeah. Like my, uh, they just didn't have tight. I wouldn't fucking let my kid go into an elevator all the way. I just, I, I personally just would not do that, but. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, you got you got to take into account too. Back in the '90s, you know, even though like in the '80s they talked about stranger danger and things of that sort of nature, I mean, parents didn't know how horrific a lot of stories like the ones I cover really were as well. And so, you know, there was a little bit more independent freedom due to due to like lack of knowledge and ignorance to a lot of uh, the evilness in the world as well. And so, I mean, because look, I, I can recall things, you know, when I was growing up where I had a lot more freedom than I would have had if I grew up in this time and age right now, you know? Yeah. And so, I mean, I, I, I don't get me wrong. I, I'm not saying that, you know, like you're wrong or anything like that. They, they you know, like they probably, it's, it's probably a mix of that and a mix. Yeah. And so I think it's just a little bit of like column A and column B with those situations and that where I'm not like, I'm, cause I'm not invalidating what you were saying or anything like that. As far as what you experienced, I think that it was a mixture of that ignorance as well as them not really caring too much and everything like that. So you're in an elevator, you're by yourself, no phone, no nothing. I and it, am, how, how long, how long was it that you were in this elevator for? Can't even remember, but uh, yeah. I remember having like therapy sessions just over the elevator. So, oh, wow. that, so yeah, my AP put, me in therapy just for the elevator incident she didn't put me in therapy brand um, what, 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 what's your ap what, what's an ap adopted parent sorry adopted oh, okay, okay. yeah yeah so go ahead i'm sorry uh, yeah and i remember in that in uh i had to draw what i felt like and i just drew eyes and just blacked out the entire rest of the page <laughs> yeah yeah um 
um, I screamed. I remember screaming for so long, so long. Um, it was probably, I want to say it was probably like a few hours and uh, that I was in there all together. But me screaming, someone heard me and uh, called 911. It took a while when uh, when the people were talking to me, they were telling me, um, if I get too hot, you know, I could take my bathing suit off. That's not much, you know, better. But they're worried about the air yeah. able to get in. Um, I remember they finally got there and got me out. And I, I, I jumped on the firefighter like, yeah, like he saved my life, which he did. But um, it was, it was, he cracked it open because the electricity still wasn't on. Um, yeah. Just bad, yeah, it was just a bad day for everybody in Los Angeles, I'm assuming. But uh, then shortly after that, um, and while all this is going on, I had been moved from so many schools. I, I don't know why uh, Dallas thought that was a good idea to keep moving me from school to school. I think really I had issues yeah, like like behavioral or or yeah. Yeah. okay. Yeah. It seems to me, you know, now I, as I'm older, it seems to me that, and I know you know enough about them. They really didn't want people involved in their life or people digging into their life. They smoked weed. They weren't like the stablest people, you know. So, yeah. and with the stigma added, like the society you know, basically shunning them on top of all of that. They were just super protective um, with themselves and their relationships. So they weren't really concerned if I could attach to friends for very long. That was not even like a, a thought in their mind, whether that would be just extra det detrimental. Since I had behavioral problems, they just decided to move me from school to school to school, thinking that, you know, no one would dig into my issues. Do you remember what kind of behavioral problems you might have had? Well, or was, you had? Was when I was really young, like still a baby, I was diagnosed with something called reactive attachment disorder. We shouldn't call that. Really, that, that term is being overrun with developmental trauma. Yeah. So uh, diagnosis is just outdated, but it's more popular known as reactive attachment disorder. So I could not bond Dallas at all, which is totally natural for adopted kids not to bond. Really, I was just diagnosed as being traumatized <laughs> really young. Then Dallas had a miscarriage, and that was a whole nother set of horrible problems because... I remember, gosh, it was in the middle of the night. She is screaming like I thought she was dying. Okay. And I remember yeah. in the back, I'm trying to sleep because it's so late, but she's dying. And um, oh my gosh, her, her boyfriend decided to stop at the 7-Eleven to pick up a pack of Newports. And while like she, like the blood curdling, like they're all. <laughs> Like, and wait, wait, like, so, like, like, on the way to the hospital, he stopped at the 7 Eleven? Yeah. What the fuck? Me 
And I am looking at Dallas like, oh my gosh, she's dying right here. And his name's Ken. Ken goes into the 7-Eleven. Oh my gosh. Like, <laughs> all hell is breaking loose. And yeah, he's like, wait, wait up. I think I'm going to need a pack of cigarettes before we go do all of this, okay? So... <laughs> What the fuck? Yeah, this like, is- I, I, holy shit, man! Your wife, you, your wife is possibly, or your girlfriend, what, yeah. whatever. Uh, you know, I'm just for they sake of, you know, just it- for sake of storytelling. Wife is like dying, and you yeah. decide to go stop on the way to the hospital to Seven Eleven to go get a pack of Newports. Like, what the fuck, man? Even there, I'm telling you, their relationship was off. All right, I'm just gonna keep it real. That's- I- that's I bonkers. No, you, look, look you, you, you're being very nice about it. That's fucking bonkers, okay? Yeah. I, I, I'll say it if you don't want to. That That is crazy, batshit crazy. I'm sorry. It was it was too much. It was really too much. I thought she was she was bleeding everywhere. Like, yeah. and didn't know what was going on at all. She didn't know she was, she was pregnant. She didn't think she could get pregnant. Yeah. Right? right. So, and this is, apparently she was uh, three months so like there is like a lot of bleeding like there is there's something really going on here and um fuck but that turned into a whole nother devastation for them too when that happened right because they they wanted their own she they just weren't i think if she would have known she would have probably maybe taking i don't know if she could have been able to take care of herself a little you know what i mean she would have been a little yeah she 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 would know she wouldn't have was she drinking as well during that time frame probably too yeah yeah so that that plays a part i mean depends on you know if like weed i I don't think weed's gonna affect you to have a miscarriage but you know other things might 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 be involved as well uh you know over strenuous activities or you know what heavy lifting wherever it could be can also play a factor as well. And plus the age as well is another issue too. So, yep. yep. So yeah, there's, I, I think, yeah, she, we weren't prepared. We thought she was dying. We really thought she was dying for no reason. This is going on. And <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. I just wonder like what people, I'm, I'm young. I was too young to remember, but I'm just wondering what everyone in the parking lot and everyone in the store is like thinking what's going on. But so it was a miscarriage, but that that was a huge blow for them. My behavior, and it was kind of a blow for me too, because I was so lonely. I was so yeah. lonely. I would have absolutely loved um, some a sibling that I could just be around, at least, you know, not be alone. Yeah. Uh, so for everybody, that was kind of a blow. And my behavior, Ken had a temper, um, you got to think how he was raised too. He was his background. He's from Jacksonville, Florida, and uh, the during you know the crack epidemic and all of that. He's oh got yeah. News. Um, he went into the army as a boxer just to get out, just to try and save himself from that environment because it's not good there. Single mother. I, he was. I think there's. I think he's got like seven siblings he has Holy no shit. dad is he's never met his dad he's no idea so there's a lot of trauma there that he's got he cannot control his temper whatsoever and um 
I, I, I remember spilling, uh, and, he, and he never has been. Um, I remember he beat me with the belt when I was about four for marking on the walls. Yeah. It was, it was bad. So he's got a temper through all of, all of this too. And I spilled nail polish remover on the carpet. So they were not going to get their um, deposit. Yeah. Deposit back. Exactly. And we're in an apartment. So he ripped me up. Um, I had bruises on my arms. I am hysteric. This was before school. And uh, the bus driver saw me crying and the bus driver went and told um, the the front people at the school uh, that he sees me coming out just distressed. There's something wrong with her. She's always distressed when she gets on the bus. Seems like she's better. Seems like she doesn't want to go home, um, which I didn't. I loved going to school. That was that was the only time I was around other kids, other people. I was able to socialize. I was able to have friends. I mean, even though yeah. I had to move every year and start fresh every year, like it was still an escape from, you know, the toxicity of that family. It, that them, t- it was it was too much. CPS was called. Best called CPS to do an investigation, and they asked me what happened. I told them, oh, you just grabbed me by the arms, but there were definitely marks on my arms. So. Yeah, CPS was called. And that really, in a way, helped me and hurt me. If right. Sense. Well, I mean, listening to CPS uh, horror stories as well um, that I found on TikTok, I, I, I know what you mean as a blessing and a curse because you're already in a bad situation. With CPS, uh, a lot of times they don't make it any better but no. you get pulled but you get pulled out of something bad and then you get put into something unknown and then you know it's a it's a kind of a dice roll if you're going to be in a, in a better situation or a much worse situation here they came and they asked questions and they did absolutely nothing the way dallas and ken acted dallas told me that i had nobody and that nobody wanted me and that um if anything happens of this or if any sort of charges get filed against Ken or if anything happens, she was going to put me in the foster care. Yeah. She was was going to put me right back in the foster care. She told you that? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. What? Like what the fuck? Yeah. One time she abandoned me on the side of the road on Burbank Boulevard. Like it, we're still in Los Angeles. There's still uh, uh, millions of people here, right? That could be. Yeah. She dropped me off on Burbank Boulevard. I was around seven and she took off. Holy shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, she came back like, you know, she took a breather, I guess, around the corner. I don't fucking know. But yeah, she threats of abandonment actually abandoning me like that's totally illegal like it's totally illegal to drop off your kid on the side of the road and leave them well i mean that growing up in the 90s in the south that that wasn't a frequent thing i heard about but it it did happen um a lot a lot more than people would actually uh think of i mean kids acting up and everything like that and mom go mom or dad go okay you want to act you want to act like a badass here you go 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 be a badass on your own, man. 
and you know, go down the street, turn around, and you know, kids crying and everything like that, pick them up, and say, "All right, you tired of being a badass? Yeah, okay, let's go." Yes, yeah. but I'm assuming it was a lot more extreme than that. Um, holy shit, though, dropping a seven year like, like Jesus Christ, dude, that, that is. I'm telling you, there's something off about there not being the the right bond there. I'm telling you, there was something off. I just don't see, and and they're boomers, so yeah, probably plays a part too. Like the generation that they grew up with was survivors of of World War II, and there's yeah. a lot of patients. There's a lot of trauma involved back, and the depression was going yeah. on their parents time and that's what they they were raised with that kind of generational trauma which is gnarly boomers are crazy so yeah i i know yes and i think that's a societal you know norms that are now you know obviously we've progressed as society and we're changing and learning and i don't know what they were doing either one of them i really don't i don't think they needed to be around kids, to be honest. Just the things that they would say, like the moving from school to school to school, I think that would traumatize a kid that isn't traumatized, like much less do that to somebody that's got serious, you know, abandonment and attachment. I, I was diagnosed with an attachment disorder. Yeah, and you're getting yanked like, away. I mean, it's very, yeah. Like, why? It's very extreme what mind and she's an educator like what in what mind did she think that that was a good idea and that my behavior just wouldn't get worse by the time you know I'm 11 12 so that was kind of that was really the end of our relationship yeah so for years after that they locked themselves in their room we didn't go anywhere anymore together. Like that was the end of basically me having anyone around in the house after that. that yes. Yeah. That, 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 that day being dropped off on Burbank Avenue. Oh no, no, no. That was just, that was just a side story. The CPS oh. called and said, and she told me that she was going to, um, I was just telling you a, um, an oh, yeah. well, I was telling you a threat of abandonment. Um, with foster care after the CPS incident. So that was the severance really of any sort of like trust or any sort of bond that could, I guess, could have been made. Um, it was gone. But at the same time, they, they left me alone. You see what I mean? So I wasn't around toxic people telling me, you know, horrible shit anymore. But now there was nothing though. So I don't know really what is worse. That's why I, I, I can't really tell if CPS helped or made it a lot worse. Cause really it, it kind of, it got better to a, a sense, you know, I guess there's the good and the bad and everything. Right. So I guess. Yeah. That I, like when you tell me that, what, which is worse in my mind, you know, I, I think of that phrase, you know, misery loves company. Yeah. And then you, yeah, because I mean, it, it is, when you're alone, it is fucking brutal and it is cold. And I, I really think that being completely isolated, completely alone is a lot worse. And I mean, you, you I mean, hell, you've been in places all, where you've seen how that, how that affects people. You yeah. Know? Not all interaction was bad, you know, just right. 
like kind of bland and neutral and meh. Yeah, they were just kind of like they were just kind of toxic. You see what I mean? So it yeah. they were always bad people. They were just you know. Yeah, they they, they, they had fucked up ways. Family member that you don't really hang out with very much because they're you know, they say ugly things to you every once in a while and you're like, oh, I don't want to be around you. You, you see what I mean? So yeah. Um, yeah, just the strange that, that to me right there is just the strangest um, behavior from a parent and I, I don't have any comparison to other parents except for all the other kids already looked at me weird they knew that I was adopted because the guy who picked me up from school at the school bus was a black man. Yeah. I mean, so everybody knew I was adopted too. So there was like no even trying to blend in with like other kids. There was no, um, and I think I could tell even as a kid that those kids were doing a lot better in life than what I was doing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No hiding it. Um, Kids would always say like, why? Who's that? Who's that? Is that your dad? Are you black? Like, do I look black? (laughs) Like, and really I don't look like Dallas either. Even though she's a white woman, I look completely different from her. Like, yeah. No, yeah, there was absolutely no genetic mirroring. There was no, I was just always never a part. And now I'm really not a part of them. And um, I was sent to New Mexico. So we're going to end the episode off here. The next part of the story picks up in New Mexico, where Samantha goes and actually meets her biological family. And we're going to find out everything that happens afterwards, right? We're going to find out all those events. And I'm not going to spoil anything else for that. I wanted to let y'all hear this first part to see what her background was like as a child from a baby all the way up to age 10. So, like I said, next Friday, you'll be able to hear the next part. I'm going to title it Chickens with Syringes. And you'll see why. But anyway, so I have some announcements for the podcast as well. Y'all, everything's doing okay. It's pretty much uh, the season of chopping wood, carrying water for the podcast. It's just the work mode season. There's really not a lot of new announcements. All I can ask for any of y'all to do is to keep sharing. Uh post these uh, episodes you know copy link whatever you want to do on your socials if you don't mind it would help out a lot word of mouth helps spread this podcast out so any word of mouth that you give is much appreciated and much loved and if i could hug y'all for doing that i would hug each and every single one of you for doing it i thank every single one of you that listen and that believe in my podcast and that believe in my mission to help survivors share their stories and my other mission which is to help protect children from predators and it's just this has been a wild journey for sure I've got to meet so many wonderful people mainly off of TikTok 
and just from other survivors as well, introducing me to other people. I mean, I have a good friend who is my co-host now, you know, it's like a sister to me because of this podcast. And the only reason that Sabrina was not co-hosting with me on this was because of scheduling issues. And I remember when I told her about the story and I gave her like the cliff notes, she was like, damn, I wish I was on it. I said, I know it's okay, but I know she's going to be listening. Sabrina, I love you. Thank you so much. Samantha, thank you for sitting down with me and recording and taking a good chunk of your evenings uh, for that, spending time away from your family. And I appreciate each and every single one of you that clicked on and listened to this story. And it it does amaze me. It baffles me. I didn't think I could reach out to this many people in life and that so many of you actually care the way I do. I hear y'all, you know, I, I hear when y'all call me or text me or message me. It does mean a lot because I'm just one man and I don't have all the resources. I, hell, I don't even have the time half the time to dedicate like I want to to this mission in life we all have you know our jobs our careers businesses marriages relationships our lives and we sometimes get wrapped up in that rat race of trying to make it to the next week make it to the next month and for those of you that just took time out of your day to listen to these stories and to keep listening and just just these faithful listeners to this podcast I love each and every single one of you for it. More people have reached out to me and tell me they listen. I've had people just, I've had strangers now. This is so surreal. I've had people that I barely know say, hey, I've heard about your podcast. And would just start talking to me about it. I'm like, you heard about my podcast? So whatever y'all doing, keep doing it. Keep sharing it. It does help. You'd be surprised at the people that actually want to hear these stories and want to know that there's people out there that are standing up for survivors and giving survivors a space to share their stories. You would be really surprised at that. How many people want that and how many people just, they love that. Um, A lot of survivors tell me they appreciate what I do and that's why I keep going on. That's why I keep pushing. As far as my mental state on all this and everything, it's still strong. Yeah, these stories do get to me. Do these stories bother me? Yeah, it does. But that doesn't change the fact that the abuse is still going on in this day and age and that people need help. So I keep fighting. I love every single survivor that, that talks to me privately and talks to me you know, through social media and everything as well. And I try, what I, I try to do what I can with the limited resources I have to help. It's a hard thing sometimes. And there's times I fail. You know, we really do. Nobody's perfect, and I don't want anybody to put me on a pedestal and say that I'm this hero or anything like that. I've had a few people tell me that, and I don't feel that. I feel like I'm just a man who's tired of seeing these babies hurt, tired of seeing these men and women hurt, these survivors who suffer. They suffer in silence. And I wanted to use my voice to help out people. And so that's what I did. And I took one step forward in front of the other. I didn't have a mentor in any of this. I had I had aspirations. 
I'll tell you that much. Like Woody Overton was one of those inspirations. And if y'all don't know, by at this point, if you've been listening to every single episode, you don't know who the hell Woody Overton is. That's the host of Real Life Real Crime. And yeah, he did inspire me. And while me and him might have disagreements on with the law and everything like that on what we should do with pedophiles, um, we don't disagree in the fact that they're fucking sick and they're evil. We don't disagree that rape is horrible and wrong and that a lot of these traumas are you know, unnecessary in this world and that they shouldn't have been done to a lot of these people. That we don't disagree on. And so I got to learn so much from his stories from the detective side. And I was always thinking about these survivors of a lot of these cases and crimes that he worked on. What were they going through? How are they feeling? Where are they at now in life? And that's what kind of, you know, sparked me in that direction. And other people influenced me as well. Close friends that I know, you know, telling me that who are in support groups saying that you know regular people just don't give a shit about survivors and that hurt and then Ezekiel Harry that little two year old baby that got beat to death by his mama's boyfriend and then his body thrown away in a trash can that all you know came to play to where we're at right now and I just had enough I will say that Andrew Vax said it best Andrew Vax was an author who wrote stories, especially the Burke series. And he was a champion for children. But he said this the best, and I'm paraphrasing it, of course. Those who think about harming children are sick. But those who act on those thoughts are evil. You can never rehabilitate evil. And that was profound. He, back in the 80s and 90s, was trying to convince people that these monsters that harm our children, they are beyond rehabilitation. And then the studies have shown that those pedophiles, those, those molesters, the offending pedophiles, they will continue to offend over and over and over and he was screaming that for years but this is not a pedophile story not yet this is about a woman who went through adoption and the TTI and addiction and because of the trauma that she went through in life as a child and the things that she had to suffer through and just a series of unfortunate events is what I'll call it got her into the position that she was in all those years ago where she ended up killing a pedophile so this is why these stories are important so that we can understand the why and figure out the how and then what we need to do to change it y'all I appreciate every single one of you I love you all to death. Love you to pieces. Thank you all for listening. And just remember, just keep sharing. Do that, you know, how those podcasters and, you know, uh, YouTubers and all those other people say. Like, share, you know, repost, all that good stuff. Yeah, just copy that link. Share it to your profiles, please.
I don't care what platform you're on. Spread it out there. It means a lot to me. And I appreciate it. And I appreciate y'all listening. Thank you so much. I hope y'all have a good day. Stay tuned next Friday for part two of the Samantha Haynes Chronicles.